Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who is the former Director for European Affairs on the United States National Security Council from 2018 to 2020. Colonel Vindman served in the Army for 21 years and is a Purple Heart recipient. Since his retirement, he's become a New York Times bestselling author for his memoir, Here, Right Matters, an American Story, Wherever Fine Books Are Found, is a senior advisor to Vote Vets, a progressive veterans advocacy pact, and is currently pursuing a PhD in international affairs at Johns Hopkins University. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. An update on the Johns Hopkins thing. I turned in my doctoral dissertation, so now I'm waiting for feedback and getting ready to defend. Well, congratulations, and the next time you come back, we'll call you Dr. Benman. Yeah, that's going to be weird. So, Alex, there's a lot to talk about. The last time you were with us, it was just after Russia had invaded Ukraine. The Ukrainians are on the march. There is a lot going on there. So let's get into it. How do you see the conflict as it stands today? So for the cause of democracy, for the cause of a rules-based international order, for the cause of you know good versus evil, things are going quite well. On the other side of the equation, things are going terribly bad if you're an authoritarian regime. When we spoke back in probably the February-March timeframe, relatively quickly after the war started, it was apparent that the Russians were not going to be able to achieve all their military objectives, in particular, their aspirations for seizing the entire country in short order were dashed. They didn't assemble enough forces. Those forces weren't properly trained. They weren't prepared. Probably more importantly, they didn't have the morale or the will to achieve the military and political objectives. But it was still quite challenging it was unclear how well the Ukrainians would continue to perform if the Russians got their act together, if they back then could have really still held on to large portions of the territory. In the months since we spoke, the Russians made some gains. And I, probably even back then, I said that they would make some gains, but they would be reversible because eventually the Russians would run out of steam and the initiative would switch to the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians would start to liberate their territory. That's largely played out the way I expected. Maybe the tempo was a little bit different. Frankly, I thought there would be a lot more ebbs and flows. The Russians would maybe manage to secure more of the Eastern territory before they finally ran out of steam, before the Ukrainians started to mobilize. In reality, the Russians didn't make much in the way of gains. They had small gains, ran out of steam, probably a little bit beyond the point where I thought uh, they would be able to hang on to, but these things are quite dynamic. 
And then the Ukrainians have made a lot more headway. So there are things that are predictable, kind of the big sweeps. And there are things that are the timing of some of these things are much, much harder to discern. What's going to happen from here on out, I think, is also relatively clear. Those successes that the Ukrainians had around the city of Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, northeast, those were so successful as to really keep the Russians off balance in that region to the point where they're still not able to kind of gain their footing. So the Ukrainians are going to continue to make gains. We've seen that over the course of the past week. They're going to continue to liberate additional territory in their eastern portion of the country. They may even start to chip into some of the territory that Russia's held on to since 2014 in a relatively short period of time. Over the long haul, I think there's a limit of advance for the Ukrainians. You could be quite effective at liberating territory, but the Russians are going to start to shrink the amount of territory they hold. They're going to start surging forces into a smaller area of territory that's potentially more easily defensible, and that could be supported with artillery fire. So I think there's a quite reasonable chance that the Ukrainians are just going to eventually hit a wall themselves. But after some significant gains, some significant liberations, and each one of those gains, frankly, eases the lives of countless Ukrainians that are subjected to the oppression of the Russians, have been for many, many months. On the Kherson front, that's the southern prong. This was also expected a longer campaign. And there again, this was supposed to play out over the course of weeks and months. It has been weeks, you know, tipping into months. And the Ukrainians are starting to gain some significant ground. I expect that area to be liberated, the Russians to be thrown across the river to the far side of the Dnieper, but then be in a more defensible position to kind of hold ground for at least a little while. And then again, we see a slightly more static line going into the winter and probably heading into another fighting season, unfortunately. So six or nine more months of this, and then we'll see what happens in the next wave of fighting. I expect the Ukrainians will continue to be successful, but there are risks, all sorts of risks. And we see some of those unfolding with regards to the saber rattling from Putin, these mobilizations that are supposed to change the military landscape in his favor, but frankly, probably will not. And the consequence of those mobilizations with internal instability in Russia, all these things will be unfolding increasing the kind of the risk of some sort of accent miscalculation. The things that you've just mentioned, whether or not it was the Ukrainians on a, a steady advance, the partial mobilization by Putin to basically create conscripts, maybe just cannon fodder. These are gentlemen who have no combat training, no military training. They're being sent to the front without supplies, without bulletproof vests. I don't know how much to make of pictures of these guys walking around with rifles of World War II vintage or rusted out AK-47s, all of these videos coming out from sort of mustering areas where the people are like, this is what you got. I don't want to be here either, but this is where we're going. That is not the sign to me of, you know, the vaunted Red Army. Is it corruption alone that allows what was considered for most of the past century, I guess, the last 80 years anyway, to be one of the, if not the second most powerful land army, maybe with the exception of the United States and China, just based on size. How does something fall that quickly into disrepair? This process goes back quite some time. You had the vaunted Soviet military start to collapse slowly as they receded back from their holdings in Eastern Europe in the late 80s. In the 90s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Red Army itself was massively under-resourced. And this was uh, basically a situation that unfolded through the 90s and the 2000s, 
what started happening after the Georgia war in 2008 was a concerted effort to start to rebuild, you know, kind of a 10 year effort to rebuild from 20 years of neglect and breakdown of order and function. And clearly that was a very, very superficial painting over with some advanced equipment, with some nicer uniforms, with some kind of snazzy PR type stuff, but it didn't really get to the rebuilding of the force. So that's part of the issue with regards to the military. I think there's a bigger factor here. It's a very subjective factor. It is a rot associated with the authoritarian regime and how that particular authoritarian regime functions, where corruption's endemic. The good estimates were about 30 to 40% of the military defense budget was pilfered. Clearly, that may have been kind of wishful thinking, and it was even larger sums of resource that were pilfered to enrich senior military, senior defense officials, political leadership, and things of that nature. I think that's one of the most significant factors. But what explains the poor performance of the troops is, yes, there were kind of leadership factors, poor leadership, but maybe more importantly is there's no morale, there's no will to engage in this unjust war that was billed as a peacekeeping operation. And if the Russians were transparent about what was going on and the challenges that they were going to face or had those expectations in the first place, maybe the Russian military would have been better prepared to fight this war. I'd say the senior military officers I met really came across as quite professional. They had extensive training. They had all the military academies. Of course, they were organized where everything was very, very rigid and hierarchical. It doesn't help when you're fighting a very, very ingenuitive, dynamic adversary like the Ukrainians that are very decentralized. And also fighting on their home turf. On their home territory, you know, they have no place to go. There's no place to run. They have to hold their ground. So there's a lot of different factors in play, but I think it could be summarized in just a simple rot with the system, the political system, the nation at large that permeates everything. You've seen these pictures and videos and stories of thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Russian men making for the Finnish border, the Polish border, wherever they could to get literally the hell out of Dodge. It's been hundreds of thousands. And, you know, frankly, in the fairly significant hundreds of thousands, estimates run potentially as high as maybe 600,000 people have fled. That's amazing. And why do you think he's letting them go? That's an interesting question. I think there's a consideration that these folks are unwilling to fight and would resist. And it's better to have them outside the country, even though they're kind of able military-aged males, it's better to potentially not have them there because whoever's left is prepared to serve. They're not prepared to flee. They have you know, some sort of skin in the game. That might be one of the calculations. I think that to me sounds like a reasonable reason to not lock down the country and contend with a huge amount of unrest with these folks being pressed into service. Can you tell us a little bit about the, I'm going to use the word chauvinism because I'm not sure what the right word is, of the Russian ethnicity vis-a-vis -vis the non-Russian ethnicities where so many of these young, middle-aged, old men are being called up. They're not ethnic Russians. They're from maybe the southern part of the country, the eastern part of the country. Is this sort of a traditional thing, which is the Russians will send the ethnic Russians to fight wars last, that they'll use their ethnic minorities first? Is that a normal thing for them? It is a normal thing. And actually, you use the exact right term. It is Russian chauvinism that's at play here. This ends up being a fairly significant feature of my doctoral thesis. It's 
two sides of a coin of Russian chauvinism and a belief in Russian exceptionalism. Russia is a great nation. It's entitled to dominate these people, to have these colonial holdings with these minorities, to a privileged sphere of influence over Ukraine and Belarus. That's the exceptionalism side of the angle. But the other side is clearly a deep chauvinism over these other regions. Russia believes in this concept of Great Russia, Little Russia, and Belarus. Little Russia is Ukraine. That's the kind of term of art behind the relationship and the kind of triad of Russia's identity. It's Great Russia, Little Russia, and Belarus. And it had a deep sense of chauvinism that these were kind of backwoods, kind of hicks or something of that nature. They wouldn't fight. They didn't have the will. They didn't have the intellect. They would turn tail and run. They would crumble. You know, it's interesting. The Russians are deeply, deeply racist towards ethnic minorities. And you're absolutely right that they've mobilized what they believe to be disposable people in the Far East, kind of Western Siberia, Tuva, North Caucasus, all these different regions. And they're burning through that population first. Maybe there's even a malicious intent. You know, the Russians believe that there's a browning of Russia that's very, very dangerous. And they were fearing that the white Russians would be subsumed into, you know, something that's different than the Russians they want. So there could very well be something malicious about burning through these people and setting aside these challenges that they might face with demographics in the future. And then simply, there is a very practical notion that if they go to these locations first, then they don't have to go to the larger cities where there are Russian populations that potentially could be more impactful if they resist. And they started doing that a little bit, and there's already been some significant pushback from some of these regions, these tertiary, secondary cities, populations of a million or more in Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's going to be destabilizing. That's why Putin resisted doing a mobilization at all and went to a partial mobilization before considering a general mobilization. Has there been a general mobilization of any country since World War II? That's a good question. I would say there are some close scenarios. I think the Iran-Iraq war was a general mobilization of peoples to fight that war. That was significant. I would say in the Korean War, the Korean and South Korean people were fully mobilized. Um, Chinese did a significant scale partial mobilization. There have been some precedents, but you know those other scenarios were not considered great powers or even you know heavyweights, regional heavyweights. This is the first time I would say that there has been a general mobilization or something approaching a general mobilization by a great power since World War II. Alex, everything you've described in the last couple of minutes, you know, which when I had you on last spring or late winter, the Russians thought this was going to take three days, thought that the Ukrainians would welcome them as heroes, as liberators. Obviously, none of that has happened. President Zelensky the people around him and obviously his military commanders down to the individual men and women who are actually on the front lines have been fighting, I think, bravely, heroically, and effectively, clearly. But now everything that Putin is doing seems to be done out of weakness, which is he needs more people at the front, but he's not willing to use the people who are in front of him. You know, he's letting these people go, hundreds of thousands go, because it's better to have them as somebody else's problem rather than his. What's going on around him as far as you can tell? Because if it's true that there are, what, 60,000 some dead Russians so far, right? That is a significant amount of people in a modern war over the course of eight or nine months. How is he sticking around? It's absurd, frankly. And 
in no democratic context would that be remotely acceptable. Even in a lot of authoritarian regimes, that would be significantly destabilizing. I think that the numbers probably are a little bit high on what the Ukrainians are reporting for Russian casualties. I think they're probably somewhere easily in the 30s to 40 range. I think that's a reasonable prospect. And the military math is three to one for every killed, there are roughly three injured. So we're talking about somewhere in the ballpark of 120, maybe 150,000 between killed and wounded. And that's why he went to this pretty extreme idea of a partial mobilization to accumulate some 300,000, some estimates say as many as a million people into the ranks to fight. But I would say this, I tend to be a doubter about regime change in Russia. I think that there are different quantifiable probabilities around different outcomes. I think it's a low probability for there to be a palace coup, that somebody within you know, his inner circle, within the security services, within the Ministry of Defense, within the armed services, is going to launch a coup. I think that they're all largely cut from the same cloth. They've all profited from this Putin regime that's been around for 22 years. And I really don't see what they think they could potentially stand to gain with removing him and then having some sort of battle over who takes the reins afterwards. I think there's definitely going to be growing instability and popular unrest. The problem is that I think Putin has really honed the means of repression, and he has a lot of headroom as to what he can do with regards to repressing a population. So I think that's a slightly higher probability. I think it's still unlikely. I think what's going to end up happening is that he'll probably be around for, I think I probably even said it before, he'll probably be around for another year and a half through the rest of this term till 2024. And then he might choose to do a situation in which he seemingly steps aside, lets somebody else kind of be the face of the country like he did with Medvedev in 2008 and still pulls the strings. He's still in charge, but allows, you know, those folks that are grasping at straws and are looking for a way to normalize relations with Russia to do another reset and things of that nature. I think that's a real danger. But unfortunately, I don't see the signs yet of the kind of instability that's likely to unseat him. Now, there is going to be more protests. It's going to be a tougher winter for him. Sanctions are biting more casualties. Depending on how quickly things crumble in Ukraine, I mean, if the Ukrainians are catastrophically successful and really start to kick the Russians out of almost everything, they go past what I think is a limit of advance, they start to liberate Crimea, that could change the dynamic and get him to be even a bigger risk taker to a certain extent. But there's a ceiling. He's going to go choose a course of action that allows him to save his skin and uh, preserve his regime and live to fight another day. So speaking of that, so there's the limit of advance, which is an amateur historian, I understand, is sort of the furthest effective extent an army can advance, right, without having to bring up reserves and supplies and consolidate holdings, although I guess it's all Ukrainian territory, so they're retaking homeland. But, you know, there's been these stories out recently about the fact that Putin does feel cornered. The idea of, you know, nuclear saber rattling is re-entering, that there was a train headed towards the Ukrainian front that it looked to have been, you know, hauling nuclear missiles. I don't know if those are strategic or tactical. Frankly, Alex, I don't know that it matters, although, again, I'm an amateur at this stuff. But, you know, where does the saving his skin in the bright flash of a, of a nuclear detonation, like how do those things exist simultaneously? They don't. And that's why I think there's only so far he's going to push. He's been led to believe that all he needs to do is push a little bit further, a little bit further 
to get the other side to bend and break and come around to his way of doing things. And I think that he's just been trained. He's been enabled to act with impunity. I think the fact is that there is a great resolve from the Ukrainians. I think there's a great resolve from the democratic world to resist this kind of dynamic of a state seizing territory from its neighbor, especially a nuclear state like Russia. And I think that's just not likely to change. So he's going to run into his belief that he could get away with something with the reality that he can't. And when push comes to shove, he's not going to push past the point of using nuclear weapons. It's unlikely, I think, at this point that he's going to use nuclear weapons because that changes that dynamic to an existential threat to him, to his regime. Well, into the world, <laughs> frankly, too. Right? Into the world. Well, we should probably parse this out a little bit because I think it's very unlikely that we have a scenario where there is a nuclear use against NATO. You have the doctrine of mutually assured destruction that warns off that scenario. Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. They gave up their nuclear weapons, so it doesn't have that kind of security. So there's a higher but still negligible chance that the Russians use a nuclear weapon there. The reason that there's a, a higher chance is, again, they don't have to contend with the direct consequence of a nuclear response. But this administration has been quite effective, either directly or through heavy hitter proxies, saying that this is a game changer. Breaking this taboo would result in a direct confrontation with NATO. It introduced this idea of strategic ambiguity. What happens if you push past the nuclear threshold? It's a major reason warning off uh, Putin from this kind of action. And then there are some very practical considerations. I think the fact is that he has to deliver a nuclear payload. That is not a done deal. That is not an easy thing to do. The Russians have only been about 30% effective in delivering cruise missiles to targets. The Ukrainians have been knocking them out of the sky pretty effectively. These NASAM systems that are coming in the next couple months, the German air defense systems, these things are just going to make it harder and harder for him to deliver a nuclear payload. So he could try to do something along the front lines. You know, we'd see some indicators of that coming. It's possible he might leave his troops in place and have them hunker down. He might draw back and let the Ukrainians move forward and strike them. But from a military perspective, a nuclear weapon actually is not a game changer. Not one, probably not two or even three, because a lot of these forces are operating in armored vehicles. And if they're not in the immediate blast in that 500 meter area, which a large force doesn't really operate in a 500 meter area, you want to be spread out. Right. This is not the European wars of the 18th century, right? Right. You're not going to have your entire formation crowded into that 500 meter space. They're going to be spread out. So it's military effectiveness is also unclear. It's mainly a strategic messaging tool indicating how far you're willing to go. And if it doesn't achieve your military objective and the Ukrainians kind of will have to deal with the situation and continue to fight, then he doesn't really accomplish anything. But he deals with the consequences because the nuclear employment by Russia would take these remnants of support that he has. And it's fragile with a place like China. It's more fragile with a place like India, and it shatters those. And I think the costs of a nuclear employment are quite high and potentially spell the thing that he's trying to avoid, which is regime-ending circumstances. So let's zoom out from Russia and zoom back in here to the United States. I want to stay on Ukraine and Russia. So a week or 10 days ago, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which delivers I don't know if it's not all, Alex, a significant amount of natural gas from Russia into Europe was sabotaged. It appears, at least the last reading I had, was that there was still so much gas leaking that whoever the inspectors or whoever was weren't able to get close enough to see what had actually happened. But very quickly here in domestic political media, 
Tucker Carlson, Dan Bongino, a lot of the sort of ultra MAGA politicians started saying that the Biden administration and its, quote, proxies had actually done this, that they had blown a hole, for lack of a better way to put it, in a pipeline. That doesn't make sense to me, simply because, one, given the Biden administration's focus on the environment, I don't think they'd want hundreds of tons of natural gas spilling out into the ground in the atmosphere. But also, why would you do that to your ally, Germany? So first, I want to ask, what do you think happened to that pipeline? And the second, because you were at the very middle of this sitting at the White House, going back to 2018, 2019, the perfect phone call, all the things you and your family have endured. I want to talk about the reasoning behind this, but let's start with the pipeline itself. What do you think happened? Reed, so what you're trying to say is that you don't believe Tucker Carlson? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, obviously clearly absurd. He's not a very funny comedian, and certainly he's a pretty effective mouthpiece for the Russians. I still don't understand how that kind of reconciles in MAGA mind that the Russians that are conducting these barbarous war crimes are the good guys and how Tucker can continue to be such a, an effective cheerleader for their cause. But for this Nord Stream incident, it seems clear, and I feel quite comfortable taking this position, and I will be validated. There is not a lot of fence sitting here. This is not the West. This is Russia doing this. It is not the West for one simple reason. We don't engage in those kinds of dirty tricks. I know there's a lot of people that think that, you know, oh, the CIA could be up to all sorts of like dirty tricks. That's just not the reality. We act based on principles. We act based on our values. And we're not going to do something that's so contradictory to our values, whether that's climate change, whether that's attacking a pipeline that's necessary for our friends. We just don't do that. Now, our adversaries wouldn't hesitate to do that, pointing to the fact that it's Russia. This is a strategic messaging effort to say that we now think that this is no longer about Russia, Ukraine. There are going to be direct consequences, not indirect, as in we're going to shut off your gas, but we're prepared to attack critical infrastructure. NATO is not super, super effective at operating in those waters. It's really the Russians that have kind of mastery over those waters and have the submarines that with the ability to conduct these kinds of operations rather than the West. So I'm very, very confident in saying it was the Russians doing this. So you've got Tucker who, I don't even know if he's a useful idiot, but he's useful to them. He's now being shown on Russian state television regularly, if not nightly. But again, then you have all these sort of MAGA talking heads. I mean, is it just this sort of white Christian nationalism? What do you think it is? Because I know that in Italy, we've seen a far-right government elected. In Sweden, we've seen a far-right government elected. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is all sort of tied together. But why are these talking heads, right, who claim to be patriotic Americans, why are they towing this line for the Russians? I mean, are, are they on the take? It's interesting. I could explain Putin's decision-making better than I can somebody like Tucker Carlson. I'd say Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump, they're kind of cut from the same cloth. There is no guardrail. There is no principle. There is no North Star. There's no moral compass. There's only self-service. And they've gone in to support Putin from basically the beginning. They see a constituency that is diehard. There's nothing that you could do to dissuade some of these folks from believing that it's the United States that's the aggressor and poor Russia is under attack. Those are the folks that are drinking the Kool-Aid, will are prepared to, you know, take that poison pill if told to do so. And that's the only crowd that he's really playing towards. 
but let's turn back to domestic politics. So now, you know, we see all of this happening. We can fold in the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago in August, which I'm sure as somebody who was not only a senior member of the military, but also at the National Security Council, probably had experience with high-level code word, secret documents, top secret SCI documents, all these other things. And now we see the January 6th hearings, which are about to come online. As someone who's been through that crucible, now that you've got a little bit of separation from it, one, how are you doing? How is your family doing? And, and how do you see personally some of these things playing out? I'll start with the fact that I'm quite hopeful for the midterm elections. The American public has this kind of deep desire for balanced government and has consistently returned power to a party that's out of power. And that's the way it looked. It looked like a kind of a normal election reversal for the president and for the party in power. The enormous overreach by the Republican Party, by the Supreme Court, the co-equal branch of government, has actually changed the dynamic a little bit. You know, you would want to maybe have a divided Congress, one in one party, one in the other. But it looks like the Supreme Court is kind of an extension of the Republican Party and an extreme wing of the Republican Party. So the way you balance against that is by keeping power in the hands of the Dems in Congress. And I think that we might very well see a situation where it looks quite likely that the Dems might pick up a couple seats even in uh, the Senate. They're going to be all close races, as they have been for quite some time in the battleground states. But it looks like they're going to be some pickups. And this wave election of where Trumplicans kind of coming in the midterms in the House does not look like it's going to happen. Part of it is the terrible candidates that they picked in a lot of cases. And part of it is, frankly, uh, mobilization of America that now sees legitimate threats to the rights that they believe that they would enjoy that were not to be infringed on. Those things are now starting to develop in a way where there are many more new registered voters, uh, folks that haven't voted before, but are now passionate and interested in, in voting. And I think that at least there's a path to retaining the House. I think it's going to be a t really tough and you know, Republicans may, may still win, but the margins are going to be thin and thin margins do not bode well for extreme policies, especially in a body that has to conduct elections every two years. So I'm certainly a lot more hopeful than I was at the beginning of the year. But for me personally, it has been kind of difficult to accept the fact that I did what I could, but not enough to warn about these potential outcomes with regards to Trump. But at the same time, I take some pride in the work I've done to try to help, whether that's on the advocacy for principled leaders, for candidates that are going to hold the line for democracy. I've been pretty free and open about endorsing folks that are going to unseat insurrectionists or hold Congress in Democratic hands. I've been helpful with regards to Ukraine. I think at this point I've raised over $5 million for Ukraine. I've been helpful in connecting the dots on military support to Ukraine. I've written dozens of articles advocating for good policy. I took a trip to Ukraine. You know, last time we spoke, I was probably struggling a little bit to try to figure out what I could do. I was at a government and government, I knew exactly what I'd be doing. I'd be coming up with the policies to help Ukraine win. But I feel like I've been able to pitch in in a way that was unforeseeable and unexpected. And I take some pride in that. I'm, I'm not one to dwell on the past and what could have been. I try to look to the future. 
Well, and I'll say this, you know, in an administration where so many people, some of them very close friends of mine, some of them of long acquaintance, could have and should have stood up long before you did, before you even had the opportunity or felt the responsibility to, you know, we might be in a different place today. But, you know, all we can do is say thank you for your work and, and that of your wife and the fact that you both continue to be in defense of democracy. And so we, we hope that that fight continues and that you know, we agree that you know, we got to do everything we can to ensure that the pro-democracy candidates this fall, guys just 30 some days away from election day, are swept to victory on November 8th. And then you know, we'll you know, maybe get some sleep on Wednesday, Alex, and then get right back to work on Thursday. So before I let you go, where can everyone find you online? When I'm online, I'm typically try to be on Twitter, provide some good information on what's going on. It's at a Vinman is my handle. My wife is actually far more entertaining, as you pointed out, and that's like <laughs> hobbyist. She's on pretty often. And the rest of the time I, I'm trying to publish in a couple of different journals, foreign affairs, New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Alex, I want to thank you for all of your work and your service, both in the military and since you've left. And I want to say again the same to your wife and your family and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.